Hello and welcome to Hearing Our Stories, LGBTQ Plus Lives and the BBC. I'm Matthew Linford. I've been delving into the archives at the BBC, searching out material from features and documentaries about LGBTQ people from the past 50 years, which I've shared with two groups of volunteers to hear their reactions and compare their life experiences with the way queer people have been portrayed by the BBC. In this podcast, I'm joined by volunteers from London Friend, a charity working for the health and well-being of the LGBTQ plus community in London. Our contributors are all in their 20s and include a trans man, lesbians and gay men. We'll be hearing clips spanning the past 45 years, from a documentary about Scottish gays and lesbians in the era before decriminalisation, to the experiences of early Pride marches, coverage of HIV AIDS and Section 28, and more recent reporting of so-called gay conversion therapy and casual racism in the queer community. As you'll discover, the London Friend participants are sometimes surprised, pleased disappointed and even shocked by what they're shown. But can they relate their own experiences to the portrayal of LGBTQ people from past decades? Before we played any clips, I began by asking our contributors what the BBC has meant to them in terms of queer coverage. I find it trustworthy. That's the first thing that comes up. And being not from the UK or London... Uh, For me, it's something that I turn to straight away if I want to fact-check anything. Um, In terms of representation, just in general, I don't see representation of lesbians or queer women um, as much as I would want to, just in general. I think we're getting to a stage where we have more and more representation, but um, it still stays quite at a certain level, like, we don't really delve into, like, how intricate and how, like, complex it can be. Like, we always have, like, the typical queer person kind of thing and there is not enough layers for me to actually identify with. I don't think it's not not trustworthy, but it's not my first... It used to be my first point, but specifically politically at the moment, I don't think it's very hard-hitting. I think it stays within its line and it tries to be not even partisan anymore. I think it's just not as hard-hitting as maybe some other outlets, especially for LGBT representation. It has been the same type of representation. I know they brought in a black male LGBT correspondent, and I can see they're trying, but it's still very much not covering the entire range of LGBT matters, and that's quite frustrating when it's been continuously doing the same thing. I would agree i feel like i used to really look at the bbc as being very trustworthy very much like kind of the news source and now i feel a lot more suspicious of the bbc i don't know if that's the right word but i think with stuff that's happened over the past few years i think the bbc hasn't been covering it in the way necessarily that it should be or at all and i think with queer issues um i'd say generally maybe more like Channel 4 is the kind of service that I think really engages with queer stuff really well. The first programme comes from the series Open Door, produced by the BBC's Community Programme Unit. Grassroots groups have the chance to make a programme about themselves, 
with greater editorial freedom and a more relaxed approach to balance. Here are two extracts from an edition made by the Scottish Minorities Group in 1976 called Glad to be Gay? which went out at 11 o'clock on BBC Two. When this documentary was made, homosexuality was still illegal in Scotland and only partially decriminalised in 1980. In the first clip, a visitor comes to the drop-in centre to find out more about the group's activities and stays for the evening disco. And in the second clip, we visit a lesbian couple in their home as they prepare their dinner. As we'll hear afterwards, our London friend contributors were particularly surprised by many things, not least the couple's chosen tipple to accompany their meal. Excuse me a minute, Malcolm. Hello, can I help you? Uh, um, yes, it says outside you say sell gay news. Yes, would you like a copy? Yes, please. It's 25 pence, please. Thanks very much. Thanks. Would you like some coffee while you're here? Yes, please. Right, well, let's get some over there. I'm afraid it's got milk in, is that all right? Oh, that's OK. Fine. What else do you do in SMG? I mean, apart from selling papers and things? Well, we have weekly meetings, we have discussions and guest speakers, for example. And social events, too. In fact, we're having a disco this evening, but not in here, I hasten to say. A disco? What, you mean men dancing with men? And women with women, yes. <laughs> it doesn't seem possible in Scotland. It happens in Scotland, yes. Have you been to a gay disco before? No. I don't think I'd have the nerve. What do people wear? Exactly the same sort of thing as you and I are wearing now. Would you like to come along? Well, yes. Well, our special guest here this evening is Trevor Thomas, who's on the executive committee of CHE, the Campaign for Homosexual Equality in England and Wales. Trevor is in charge of problems of elderly and disabled gays. But Trevor, what do you think about the whole question of coming out for gay people. Do you think it's good for people to come out into public? Well, I think it depends on uh, their situation, you know, where, how they're employed and how they get on with their families. It could be very difficult in your employment to make it clear that you're a practicing homosexual. But I, if you can do it, as I, in the end, did, it, it's a marvelous feeling of no longer having to go around hiding and pretend to be something that you aren't. Uh, and this immense release of your whole personality. You, you live better, you, you can paint or write or draw, or be a better lover, which is so important. And I think that I, I, I would say, come out if you can possibly do it. Be glad to be gay, really glad. Women homosexuals have their own problems. They have to face a double misunderstanding. Popular myth sees them both as imitation men and as a theme for pornography. In fact, most lesbians are ordinary women, leading very ordinary lives. I've got a surprise for you. Oh. I've been wanting this for ages, but it was out of print. Mm. I saw it up at the bookshop up the road. Mm, that smells nice. Oh, something quick. My sister phoned and asked if we'd like to go around for coffee tonight. It's a good idea. We can take that jigsaw for the kids. Which one? The one with the ships on it. What sort of day did you have? 
I've got some bad news for you. Oh, tell me the bad news. The electricity bill came this morning. Oh, how much? 4680. <laughs> I'll write you out a check for Young women are often bewildered when they first discover that they are homosexual. Even after accepting it, they are still under strong pressure to conform to the only pattern society offers them. Daughter, wife, mother. They were having milk with dinner. <laughs> the same thing. Oh, it was just <laughs> appalling. I was looking at the dance moves, to be honest. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Very awkward. Or practicing homosexual. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> it's always quite interesting how they um, definitely were like highlighting the the difficult aspects of it, but then also um, I think there was an attempt made to make uh, queer people also look like they could be in loving relationships, which at the time was probably not a very commonly held view. So it was like, I think. It surprised me for like something from the 70s as being actually quite a positive depiction of gayness. Especially when like the older guy at the end of the first clip, mm. when he was like emphasizing on how, how much, like how happier he feels when he was open, like even for myself, like coming out as like mm. just trans was, let alone being gay and stuff. So in just, you know, just the feeling of feeling free and happy and being able to live your life, not by others, but for yourself. From the second clip in particular, I thought that could have actually been shown now, especially the opening sentence of, you know, women, lesbian women in particular are either trying to be men or fetishised by men in porn. Again, the first, you know, emphasis for women, it's in the lens of men, which is, you know, the whole, whole point of being lesbian, it's removed from men, you know, in a way. But the first point they wanted to make was that from the lens of a man, it's confusing for a lesbian. Um, and it was, you know, more just like a loving, happy, you know, same-sex couple at home. And it would have been good um, to see more interrogation of that. But I, I still think that's actually the level of the media that we're seeing now. It's gay men getting drunk and it's women being... Through seen through the lens of men, I don't think that's actually any very different from now, which I kind of think is disappointing, actually. Watching that, I thought, oh, that's kind of annoying that I could have seen that now. It was my first thought. That's the whole stereotype, isn't it, that lesbian women get into relationships very quickly and have this domestic bliss, whereas gay men just go out and party and are very promiscuous and things like that, which is obviously a very harmful stereotype on both sides. Um, and I guess it was recreated in these clips as well. But I did enjoy the, um, at the beginning of the clip of the lesbian women, the very, this this thing that we've been arguing for decades now clearly about, no, it's not, being lesbian doesn't revolve around the absence of men, like doesn't revolve around like not being interested in men or being fetishized by men. It's just a completely removed thing. I did really enjoy that. Yeah, I feel like, there was definitely an emphasis put on the normality of it. And I do, I did kind of get the impression that maybe overcompensating or like trying very hard to put out this message that gay people, queer people are normal too, you know? And it, something that really did strike me was that, I guess it was that they were, they were at some community center or something at the beginning, um, just the kind of dullness of it, the way that 
everyone just looked kind of the same, dressed very conservatively, speaking very conservatively. It was very like, that's just so different to what queer spaces are like now. Like if you go to a queer night out, it looks very different. Um, they just look like they were at a pub, like pub down the road. I don't know, it was just interesting to see. It was like, are they, are they making an effort here to play down the queerness of events or? Um... I think it's the safety, isn't it? Mm. It's the, they're not safe yet. That's why they're not fully yeah. embracing it. Yeah. They're barely embracing it with them, within themselves, you know? I think it's very interesting because obviously we're very we're in a very privileged position where we can criticize it now and see and be angered by this representation but in the 70s in Scotland and you're preparing a broadcast for the BBC like you have to tailor yourself you're already a, a marginalized group that's very hated on and very like that people fear you you know you, you that is what you're striving for normalcy I, I can completely understand and sympathize with the people in those in that clip, and I it makes me a hundred percent more kind of happy that I am in the position that I'm in, where I'm not scared to be shown on TV or be on a podcast because I'll lose my job. The next program comes from a few years later, an inside story documentary called Coming Out, which revolves around four young gay men and a lesbian. They reflect on their experiences of coming out the reactions of family and society, and their place within the wider gay community, all set against the backdrop of the Pride March in London in 1979, which had a very heavy police presence. The Stonewall riot happened only a short time after another significant event, the Act of 67, which legalised homosexuality between consenting males over the age of 21 in England and Wales, but not in Scotland, Northern Ireland, the Merchant Navy or the Armed Forces. The Act and the riot lead logically to this, the biggest assembly of homosexual men and women Europe has ever seen, a spectacle quite unthinkable ten years ago, as is the participation in this programme full face of five young homosexual marchers, a decade ago, they would have been in silhouette or with their backs to camera. I think there are various um, important reasons for um, marching and being openly gay. Um, one of them is to let other gay people who can't come out, who can't tell the world that they're gay, let them know that there are thousands of other people like them uh, to give them moral support. We have got something we're trying to achieve. We want to be accepted in the community as ordinary people. And it's a way that we can get together and not demonstrate, but we, we can show that we, we are a fairly moderate group. OK, we're marching down the streets of London. A peaceful march, ending up with a rally in Hyde Park. The march basically just showed the unification of gay people across the country. It gave people a chance to get together and it showed the public that we we're semi-organised, than we have been ten years ago. I went, I went on the march um, because I think it's good for people to be seen out on the streets. We tend to get criticised for appearing and confronting people when in fact we do better behind the scenes.
considered it was an important thing to do because it was a way, if you like, of showing the world that there were a lot of gay people who were quite happy to go out on the streets. At the same time, I had a lot of reservations about it because as I was marching along beside people who I really had very little in common with, nothing in common with except my sexuality, and this seemed rather vague reason to be marching with them, but at the same time, I thought it was very important. To me, you'll always find the extremists. The f people in the front were flamboyant. Uh, and you will always find flamboyant people on anything. Um, but I so understand it, at the back, they were very ordinary people. But then it was a carnival. And if you've got a carnival, people are going to dress up. Do you want sympathy? No! Do you want aversion therapy? No! Do you want psychiatric aid? No! Wow. It's like from the beginning when they called it a riot at first, now they call it a parade, they call it something that's a happy thing, but at the beginning, to them, it was a riot, which is, if you think about it, it's quite quite negative, but then it, you've got to think it's, it's for a good cause. So, you know, yeah, that was quite strong at first, I found. It was so small compared to anything, like any pride that I've been to in the past years. Like, looking at that and hearing this is the biggest pride that has ever happened, the biggest like gay protest. That was quite crazy to see. Especially compared to now as well. The, the, like the prides that we have in, in London is, is mental. Like how far it's actually come from back, back then to, to even just now. Like people are trying to like, you know, I don't know, it's just crazy. Yeah, it's crazy to see. I think on the point of you saying that riot is quite a negative thing, I think it does bring back to the point that pride is a protest and yeah. has always been a protest and seeing it how it was at the very beginning the things that they were shouting they were shouting for equality whereas now it's a celebration or it's considered a celebration it should be to I think a very large extent still a protest because we are not at the place where we should be we've definitely made like a lot of strides and a lot of progress but it should still be a protest we should like take so much um, so much uh, kind of inspiration from, from these videos and these clips and remember how it started and why it started. I guess that kind of look like pride in its purest form where it is people coming out into the streets and like a declaration of pride in the face of probably the majority of the public saying we don't support you being this way. And yeah, that is just, while you can still say that's an element of today's pride uh, festivals, <laughs> pride marches, um, it's just a completely different thing where now it's obviously so corporate and so everybody's jumped on, on it because it's such an opportunity to make money or an opportunity to have fun and like go and party. So it's just really lost, it's, it's become so vague in what it's actually there for, I guess, apart from for some people who it's still definitely a big release. I was quite floored by the amount of police. I expected it, but that was a pretty intense. And I mean, especially last summer and this summer, there were a lot of debates about should police be allowed to be at Pride? And that's an ongoing conversation, clearly, um, since the beginning of time, because that must have been even more scary in the 1980s walking by and there's like hundreds of police. I mean, I'm sure there are so many other things they could have been doing. But also, 
the to their point of, you know, we're walking on the street and the only thing connecting us is being gay. That's something that we need, that we're still drilling into people that, you know, we're not going to like all other gay people just because they're gay. We're not all the same people. Some are incredibly problematic and ridiculous. That's just reality of humans. Um, I personally, similar to your point, I don't actually go to Trafalgar Square Pride. I haven't for the last few years. I go to subgroups, I go to Black Pride. I went to the Black Trans March in 2020. Like, I prefer to find subsections specifically because I don't want to just march along by, alongside people who may not have my interests. I know it's really, it's vital. And the only reason I can make that distinction of I will stand with people who have more commonality is because of, you know, the 1980s marches and the carnivals. They talked about protest demonstrations. You know, I think every person saw that march as something different to them, a carnival demonstration, a riot. And that's still where we are, in my opinion. Every July, everyone sees pride as something different. And I personally still don't think we've moved on further. I'm, I'm getting annoyed. Each, each cliff, I'm like, we haven't moved further and it's upsetting. We then moved to 1983 and the early days of the HIV-AIDS pandemic. The long-running science series Horizon reported from America on the mysterious infection that caused the collapse of the immune system affecting gay men, drug users and haemophiliacs. What will our contributors make of the language and reporting style that featured in AIDS, Killer in the Village? To the world outside, Hollywood is still the movie capital of the world, but to the people who live around here, it's also the centre of the gay district of Southern California. Around Los Angeles, there are thought to be two to 400,000 gay men. What is new in recent years, apart from nitrites, is the sheer numbers that have gathered together, plus the greater sexual openness and freedom that gay liberation has made possible. Did this contribute to the spread of AIDS? In their personal relationships, gay men are free from feminine restraints. In heterosexual relationships, the male traditionally is the hunter. When both are hunters, the effect is explosive. Some gay men can claim hundreds of tricks, that is, new sexual contacts each year, so sexually transmitted disease is commonplace. For many, an inevitable part of the lifestyle, and regular checkups guard against the health hazard of sexual overload. This is the clinic attached to the Gay and Lesbian Community Services Centre in Los Angeles. Room one, first door on your left, and you chart in at the desk. Apartment number six, please. No lesbians, women have more stable relationships and less disease if they avoid men. It's just men who come here, maybe 70 a night. How are you doing this evening? Just swell. Around 15,000 a year. The doctor wants you to take tetracycline, one capsule, four times a day for the next 10 days. You should avoid sex for the next 10 days, plus three days afterwards to see if your discharge returns. This clinic is run by gay volunteers. Other men go to private doctors, who may also be gay, or to the county clinic. OK, you just came in for a routine screening, OK? There's no charge for a routine screening, but I will ask you for a donation. Okay. Most men here have something. Gonorrhea, syphilis, NSU, hepatitis, the list goes on. With so much existing disease, who needs a new one? And that was the idea behind another of the theories offered. Immune overload. An explosion of sexual activity leads to so much disease that the immune system is permanently damaged. Compared with all the rest, AIDS is still quite new, and so is this. AIDS hotline. 
Yes, I'd be glad to give you the symptoms. Low grade, persistent fever, night sweats, dry coughs that are not related to colds or smoking. Weight loss of more than 10 pounds during a period of less than two months. Uh, enlarging lymph nodes. 171. He's checking contacts. For the major infections, they want to know who else needs treatment. Should that be done for AIDS too? Linda Laubenstein. As we gathered up more and more patients, as patients would meet each other in the office, it became apparent that many of the patients had had contact with one or two or perhaps more uh, other people who had the syndrome, which began to suggest to us that perhaps there was a sexually transmittable, a single uh, sexually transmittable agent that was being passed around in the community. I am speechless. <laughs> that, was, that was crazy. The way they spoke about like hypersexuality or sexual activity being the defining factor of HIV. That was um, crazy. Even like to, from the very beginning, like they counted the amount of gay people in S in Los Angeles, and I was just like, okay, that we're going down that road, and then like everything was like, I don't know, more shocking. I think the way the narrator was narrating was crazy. Yeah. I think some of the stuff he said, like two hunters together, explosive. That's just such a weird way to talk about any relationship, really but putting it in a hunter-predator kind of lens or a, the lesbian women aren't coming to get tested because they're at home with their partners, but the gay men, they're at clubs and having sex and promiscuous, boo, shame. It felt like, it felt really strange. And when the scene of the person calling the hotline and asking what the symptoms were came up, all I felt was just this kind of Im like immense sadness, just being like, imagine this new disease comes out and you have no idea what it is. It's just a death sentence to you. You don't even know how to identify it. But then I tried to think about it to, to this day and age and there's still so much like that's not taught about HIV, that's not commonly known about HIV. There's still so much secrecy and shame and stigma around it. So I don't think we've actually come all that far. Uh, we haven't removed that element of secrecy and I'm 100% I'm sure that the, the fear and the unknown is, is still there. Yeah, I was quite struck, like you said, about when they were on the phones describing the symptoms, because I think based on stuff I've heard before, but also you can imagine like with no internet or books and also active efforts made by the government to not spread the information, that was some people's only way of even finding the bare minimum out about what HIV was and what to look out for and like precautions to take. I think it was the power though of um, the actual clinic. So mm. of course the wedding was you know, a bit of a mess, but the actual clinic, you know, run by gay people for gay people, you know, that's pretty impressive. I mean, was the reality of the time. Also, I think also the reality of, it's not just, you know, gay men are being tested because they're so promiscuous and so dangerous and lesbians aren't being tested because they're not being promiscuous or whatever. But also, 
straight men are probably just scared to go because of the stigma of, oh, if you're getting tested, you're probably sleeping with other men. Like, I think there are so many stigmas that need to be addressed. Everyone should be getting tested. It doesn't matter what your gender is. It doesn't matter what your orientation is. That really needs to be the bigger conversation. The fact that there is a gay community that is there supporting other gay people to get tested and to be safe and educating people. That's something that, um, you know, it's the power of the community, but it's also something that needs to be normalised for all people, for the safety of gay people, for the safety of straight people, the safety of any people. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, the wording was obviously a bit of a mess, but as you say, it's the beginning of the AIDS. There are still people who say really ridiculous and problematic things. So I don't, again, I don't know how much of that's moved on either. Um, but it was interesting they're having those conversations quite openly um, and for themselves. For me, looking at this, what it comes down to is the shame, isn't it? It's you have to be embarrassed by sex or having sex or anything. Sex is shameful, basically, you know, and the lack of sex education, the lack of understanding, not including women when talking about gay people, it all comes down to shaming people. Oh, women are not promiscuous, men are. Gay people are even more promiscuous, you know? Like, that kind of thought process is very harmful for everyone, not just gay people, straight people, young people, anyone. In 1988, Section 28 was passed into law, which intended to ban the promotion of homosexuality by local authorities. An edition of Brass Tacks, called As Good As You, asked how this might work in practice and what impact it would have on young people as they explored their sexuality. In this extract, we hear from a gay youth group and then at the end, from a conservative local councillor who supports Section 28. The law's clearest target is the network of lesbian and gay youth groups supported by local authorities. The government says they are precisely the sort of activities against which Clause 28 is directed. One group in London welcomed our cameras, though that night attendance was down from 20 to just six. It's a general befriending and social group for young gay men to come along and meet each other and talk, um, share experiences about what's been difficult and hard. Okay. I think probably what's good for me this week is coming along to the group and getting to meet other lesbian and gay people in the same kind of situation as me. <laughs> Coming to the group, you just get here and there were just other people. I just walked through the door and sat down and people talked to me. Some of the teachers were really good about it. When I came out at school, I got a really good reaction from my friends and that, and that was, I think, the best thing that could have happened recently. Do you intend that this group should support these teenagers in their homosexuality? Yes, that's very much the intention of the group, um, to be a place where young gay men can get some positive role models and some positive input about being young and gay. Because I think one of the most difficult things growing up gay is just a complete lack of positive images often. We're bombarded with negative things. We're told we're sick and perverted or we're child molesters or at the very best we're laughable or a joke. And often we're very aware that people actively wish us ill and are prepared to bash us or would be quite happy for us to die horrible deaths, particularly of AIDS. So it's very, very important for young people to have a, a place that feels safe and they can feel positive and cared for. Is there any difference in your mind between supporting young people in their homosexuality 
and what the law calls promoting homosexuality. Well, it rather depends how this law is going to interpret the term promotion. But I don't see how you can support young gay men to feel good about themselves without saying it's fine to be gay and it's fine to be who you are. And in order to do that, to counteract all the negative stuff that people have picked up growing up, I think you've got to create some positive images. I don't really see there being a difference between promotion and support. This gay youth group seems almost to be offering itself up as a test case for the new law. It, and the other groups like it, may not have to wait long. The minute they continue to fund gay centres, lesbian centres, put different funds for different officers involved in that type of thing, then the Conservative group, as far as I'm aware, will take action. You go and ask the majority of parents in Manchester. Ask the parents, not the professors, the doctors, the lawyers. Ask Joe Soap on the street what he feels. And not the parents of the gays and lesbian kids. I mean, they are there, there's no argument there. Go and ask Joe Soap on the street what he thinks. And he will tell you quite clearly that it is not a natural lifestyle. There's one thing I loved about it is like this interview where he was like talking about the way it was coming out um, and that like all of his friends like were completely fine with it. And I found that quite amazing because even nowadays, like in a lot of like TV shows or like on TV, like they portray coming out like this horrible thing where like everyone will be horrible with you. The parents will kick you out or anything. And it was horrible to come out. And like to have that that early on where it was like, oh, my friend were completely fine with it. And I'm just like, oh, great. I really resonated with the sentence when he said, I don't see the difference between promotion and support. So it made me think of the whole rhetoric of, oh no, I, I support it, like I stand with you, but I just, I don't know why I need to see it. It's what people say about pride, it's what people say about seeing same-sex couples in, in, pub, in public. <clears throat> and it's just, there is no difference between, like if, if you support it, then you will promote it. You will, like, just supporting means allowing people to be who they feel they need to be make them let them identify the way they need to and that's just something that I really liked hearing back in that day the whole thing was that they thought the government thought that even showing anything remotely gay was promotion so I think that person on screen was just mirroring what the government what the rhetoric was at the time and so I think in that time speaking of showing gay lifestyles as promoting gayness, I think it can completely make sense. Um, yeah, and, and I think just another good thing about the clip, I, I do think I just always get a little kick out of seeing um, queer people having fun together. So it was yeah. just nice to see that it was also back then, which obviously, as you said, isn't that long ago, but in queer history and timeline, it seems like centuries. I think I was gonna kind of agree with what you said about the ending was a bit weird. You were a bit like, okay, this ended on a slightly different note. I think before then I'd been kind of thinking, in contrast to some of the other clips we've seen, it was far more about taking away the narrator's voice, even though he did say some questionable things. Um, you felt like his voice was a lot less present. And it was more about the community group leaders or like moderator's voice and what he, was saying about why it was important. It was far more about his views on 
why it was necessary and why Section 28 is going to be a bad thing. So I thought that was good in terms of the clip itself. The 1990s saw the emergence of programmes made by and for LGBTQ people, such as the series Gay Time TV, which ran from 1995 to 1999. This magazine programme featured celebrity guests, entertainment, travel reports and investigative pieces, such as this item about so-called gay conversion therapy run by Christian groups. Well, there's no such thing, actually, as a gay Christian, because a Christian is Christ-like. And if you suggest by being a Christian, Christ-like, then you're suggesting that Christ was a homosexual. And that is that can never be. There's absolutely no doubt that God created lesbian and gay people. And to suggest otherwise is uh, divisive. It runs contrary to the most fundamental principle of Christianity, and that is that we are all created equal. There are already more than seven different ministries in the UK. I'm going to see Drew, who's an ex-member of one of them. The ethos was stay faithful, pray, and it will happen, you'll have a miracle, you will be turned heterosexual. Nightly I'd, I'd beg God to turn me heterosexual, I hated myself so much. Nothing happened, I stayed gay. It really was a downward cycle. I contemplated suicide at 18. Now then, George believes homosexuality starts as a seed a in a person's response. brain. He uses the image that he has received through that psychic response to allow him to fantasize at night when he gets home in his own bedroom. And he will masturbate through that fantasy. What you feed, and you're definitely feeding it through the fantasy, will grow, it deepens. You drive the roots in deeper. What you starve will die. And of course I use that uh, uh, theory through a lot of the counseling sessions. The role of a counselling organisation, a reputable counselling organisation such as ours, is merely to demonstrate the range of choices that are available to that individual and if necessary to ask questions which may not have been considered by the individual so that that person can make an informed choice without any pressure or duress. It's only when a gay person get alongside a full and complete heterosexual male can he then feed upon the maleness of the heterosexual and he will then develop and grow and receive benefit from the heterosexual male. A very thought-provoking film indeed, and if you have any thoughts about conversion ministries, do let us know. This is the first clip that had like religious elements associated at all, which actually, I'm quite surprised at, to be honest. I mean, that's generally what we hear. I mean, certainly Margaret Thatcher, the section 38, all, I mean, 28, all of the rhetoric that the Conservatives pushed down an entire era's throat was on the basis of a good Christian lifestyle and the way that has permeated to now 1999, the actual effects of emboldening the churches to be like, this is the right thing to do because an entire government has uplifted this thought. But that seems to have come a conversation a bit later. Christians are now getting the platform to say this is the right way to dissolve yourself of your gayness. That wasn't being talked about in 1976 as to, oh, I'm hated because of religious reasons or anything. But now we're seeing that. I thought it was really interesting they were even engaging with the guy who was kind of advocating for conversion therapy because 
what he was saying. I was trying to figure out, is he talking about religion here and like the, re the Christian reasons why conversion therapy should be a thing? Or is it just his own sort of take on like psychology? It was like, there was so little of anything really in what he was saying. It was just kind of unbelievable. I couldn't really focus on it as well as the fact it was just really angry in the first place. But this is also what frustrates me is like this program was like a gay program, right? like a queer program. And I was like, to have given so much camera time to that person kind of like annoys me. I was like, why do you even want to talk to that person? Find someone that maybe went to that conversion therapy and like didn't like, didn't agree with it or like whatever, but like why have so much camera time to that person when you should be so much against it, like... I think it was really interesting how there wasn't like a... I mean, nowadays, if you do a segment on TV about such an, a ter terrible thing and such a divisive thing, uh, which shouldn't be divisive at all, they always, like, give a helpline or they have the resources to help you work through your trauma, whereas clearly there, they ended it with, if you have any thoughts on this, please contact us. And it's like, it's, they probably didn't have the resources back then to help queer people with religious trauma in the way that we do now. So again, it, it, was, it was quite shocking. It wasn't that long ago that I was at the Include Trans in the Ban uh, protest um, and how it was outrageous then, it's still outrageous now. It's outrageous how long it took to do anything about it. And we're still, we still have problems with it. And it's kind of like, as if media coverage in this country on that issue has died down since the 90s. Like when I moved here five years ago, I didn't even know that it was still legal, that it was still a thing. It, it's just, it was such a covert thing. And I mean, now that I know the truth, as soon as I like found out how it actually was, um, I was shocked, I was appalled. The final clip is from the series Queer Britain, made in 2017. In this programme, reporter Riyad Khalaf explores casual racism and prejudice that can be found on the queer scene and in the LGBTQ community. This extract evoked particular memories for one of our London friend contributors, because at the time of filming, she was the partner of the lesbian who is featured. When I came out and I first went out on the scene, I'm not going to lie, I was very scared. There wasn't really any lesbian that looked like me. I realised that not only did I have to focus on my race, but I also had to look after my sexuality as well. As a black lesbian woman, I do feel like I am a triple minority. Casual racism on the gay scene is very obvious and it favours being a gay white male but I want to know if the same is felt within the lesbian community. Hi. Nice, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Come in. Thanks for having me. From an outsider's perspective, it might look like the LGBT community is super inclusive, it's super liberal. Would you agree or disagree with that? It's inclusive to a point. So I got out there and I was like, oh, lesbians. Like, oh my. Lesbians. A kid in the playground. Exactly, it's like some sort of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Lesbians, lesbians, lesbians. And um, I was like, oh my God, they're all like so beautiful, blah, blah, okay. Try and act normal, try and act like a lesbian. Dancing and whatever, da, da, da. And um, 
you know, you don't realise it at first, but then afterwards when you go out a lot and then you, you can see the segregation. As soon as you walk in, like, if you look on one side and you see, I don't know, a group of black lesbians being there, and then you go onto another side and I'm, you know, you see mixed group of lesbians, and then another side you see a white group of lesbians, and then you've got, like, other lesbians on the side, you know, the Jessie J lesbians, and the waistcoat lesbians, and then they're, what the, like, what, they're what's a well. waistcoat lesbian? A waistcoat lesbian's a lesbian who wears a waistcoat. Oh, well, that makes sense, yeah. <laughs> oh, would you call them like more butch? Oh yeah, but most lesbian kind of things are more leaning towards, I don't know, normal white women. I came out at 19, there was no like whatsoever black lesbian woman I could look at and be like, yeah, like she's on TV, I want to be like her. You know, you look to people who you can, I don't know, relate to. And I think personally for me, until I went to uni or was in secondary school, I didn't realise about the fact that, you know, there isn't a representation of race for certain things. And one of them definitely is like the representation of a black lesbian. Yeah, it was, it was interesting for me to watch this because it was my home uh, at that time, like from five years ago. Um, like at that time when, when they were filming this, uh, we were having a lot of conversations. We were, uh, dating for two years by then and uh, every time and we were going out a lot so the places you know so that's another topic you know are there many safe spaces for lesbians because when, when we went to heaven or GUI we sometimes felt maybe um, not as welcomed but it was interesting to have comments like uh, you're such a cute interracial couple um, being looked at uh, on transport, on streets, uh, you know, when we came together as a couple, when we were like one unity, because we uh, we were like, I, I'm white, she, she's black, and we are both women, and we are lesbians. So as she pointed out, she is a triple minority, you know. I'm an immigrant as well, so it's like we were always joking, sitting on the tube, who is going to talk to us or look at us weirdly now, because... Uh, I was, uh, you know, I'm clearly I have an accent and, you know, it's, it's just funny combination. We're always joking about this. Love it. I love the conversation. Intersectionality within the community is such a big conversation we need to continuously have, especially over Pride. Um, there were a few more conversations this year than previous years, but, like, the reality is 80% of black um gay people would experience racism within the gay, like forget the rest of the world within it. That is a really high statistic. You're still 102% more likely to be homeless. Um, LGBTQI plus um, Muslims are um, the most scared to go out in these places because they don't, because mainly it's surrounded by drinking and people who feel like they're now scared of um, Muslims. Like there's so much conversation that needs to be had about how do we make the actual um, LGBTQI. I think the misleading part is that we keep saying community. The reality is like it's not a community because we're just people. Um, more people than we even know sometimes because some people aren't out and stuff. So just LGBT people um, plus LGBT plus people. There needs to be more conversations about how we can be safe within. Um, and I love these conversations. Like uh, the more awareness and just more conversations. So you, you, we never know whose toes we're stepping on. And I think. Um, being scared to learn we shouldn't be scared to learn there's so much I had to learn as the L about you know GBT and I wasn't scared to do that I actually loved and welcomed those conversations but I think we're more mindful oh I'm already a minority why do I have to learn about other minorities that's 
really ridiculous. We need to continue to learn so we can better ourselves within the group that we, you know, so proudly claim. We often proudly claim anyway, not everyone does. Do you know what? I fully agree, because for me personally, so obviously I'm transitioning from female to male now, but obviously back in the day, I was lesbian. So I remember back in the days when Hustlers v Divas was down in Vauxhall and literally I, I was only, well, I was 17 at the time. I managed to get in because all my friends and I've walked in and it's true. You've got like literally the group of studs there then you've got the stems there, you've got the femmes there, then you've got these ones watching this one. And it's like there's there is just so, so many labels for so many lesbians. It's like... Like we're still one person just because we dress different, just because we look different. We're not we're not different. Do you know what I mean? Just because I wear, wear a waistcoat doesn't mean I'm any less funnier than someone that wears a football kit. Do you know what I mean? And I find a lot within anything within the community, trans, anything, it's all labels. Everything has a label and it shouldn't be like that. My partner is black and it's the same thing when we're going somewhere or something. He's just like, I'm looking quite femme. Uh, can wear heels, like skirts or whatever in the street, is black and it's just like, who's going to get the fall this time? Let's just do it. And like, it's it's even like, it's even, you know, it's, he can like, sometimes he's got looks at him because of me, but he's got looks at him from like the black community for like, oh, you went for the white person. And then like, you know, there is like so many unsaid and it's just like so many things that like, you don't really know where it's coming from and like it's it's just quite like sad how like segregated it still is and I'm just like it's I've noticed some of the like most vile racism within the queer community actually like whether it's on dating apps literally people being like sorry no no black people no Asian people or whether it's like in in queer clubs I have heard the most upsetting stuff to like people of color and it's just it 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 is like just so so upsetting that we we should you know find this commonality as we were talking about before as being one group but because i don't know i mean whiteness and race is always going to be a factor in in whatever kind of like you know situation we find ourselves in um so it, it is something that we have to like keep on addressing and keep on talking about. What emerges from the reactions to these programmes is the degree to which some things are very relatable, coming out stories and the emergence and strength of community identity. But some things are also depressingly familiar, stereotypes of gender and sexuality and projections of homonormativity. But despite some of the irritations... The London Friend participants clearly appreciated the context of what they were seeing and the arc of queer chronology that the clips covered, which brought home to them how far the fight for equality has progressed. At the same time, it also highlights some of the more problematic narratives and the need for ongoing dialogue in media representation to truly reflect the diversity of today's LGBTQ community. My thanks to the contributors from London Friend. Gideon, Issy, Jack, Julian, Ludovica, Olga and Tommy. Hold up. 